0: This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. The James Bond franchise has been around for nearly 60 years. We've had various iterations of the James Bond character and various iterations of his supporting cast. But one of the most iconic types of characters come out of the James Bond franchise is that of the Bond girl. Bond Girls began with Honey Rider, played by Ursula Andress, emerging from the water in a white bikini with a knife at her hip, and has carried on with different actors, different types of roles, and different representation for females within the James Bond universe. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Funnel. She's a professor, award-winning author, and a leading expert on gender, feminism, and geopolitics in James Bond and other action films. She's currently working as an associate professor in the Women's and Gender Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma. She's a lifelong fan of the franchise and wrote a thesis on the Bond girl phenomenon that she defended in 2005 and published her first book, Warrior Women, Gender, Race, and the Transnational Chinese Star – Uh, back in 2014. In 2015, she produced a copy of this book called For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. And in 2017, published another book called Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond. She's currently working on a brand new book about this series that is appearing in March. And she has another book on the way called Screening Me Too, rape culture in Hollywood. We have a really good conversation talking about James Bond. She is a super fan of the franchise, and there is so much we can talk about. As you can tell by the length of this episode, we're both huge fans of this conversation. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And now let's talk about the one and only Bond, James Bond. Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, I am fascinated by your work. Um, I was like many James Bond fans scouring the internet looking for any clues about No Time to Die and came across uh, some of your content and uh, absolutely fascinated by it. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am fascinated, like I said, by you because you are a James Bond super fan. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you're also a woman and a woman who studies uh gender and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of different elements of the Bond films that have been described aptly by some as problematic. So I have to ask being a fan and being someone who studies these things, would you say you have a complicated relationship with the James <laughs> Bond franchise?
1: You know, I would say that I have a complicated relationship with most of popular media mm. Right? most popular media that we see is problematic when my students ask me, you know specifically about James Bond, I say, well, tell me what you like and I can tell you what's wrong with it. Like, I'm mm. really good at what I do <laughs> right right. Um, but I think that it's interesting that I get the question all the time, how can you be a woman and, and a feminist and a fan? And all of these things can coexist and you don't have a crisis of identity. and that's because we are complex multifaceted people where Like seemingly disparate qualities can actually coexist at the same time. And I think it's important to recognize that women are part of the fandom of James Bond. Women are also part of the creators of the James Bond franchise, but we do have a very patriarchal media. And mm. so the question is, if, it, if if media is being created by people who are not necessarily like you, right? If you have different identity categories than the people who are creating it, you're constantly negotiating your own connections with that me- with mm. that media, your own readings, your own meaning. And as somebody who is passionate about media literacy, I want to give people the Uh, the lens or the filter or even the barrier to be able to protect themselves and be able to select what what ideas I want to take in and and subscribe to. Because when you think about it, we emulate what we see in media, right? We consume a ton of content and it's sending us messages all the time, but we've never been taught how to protect ourselves against it. And then we can push away some of the content that we think is problematic that you're like, you know what? I don't subscribe to those ideas. I don't want to buy into these ideas, utilizing social media to comment on it, saying I don't buy or subscribe to these ideas. Um, but for me, I've always been able to negotiate that that place and find value where I can. It's a notion of find your heroes where you can, but also speaking out about content that I don't like and really just putting it forward and saying, look, some of these ideas they, they're there. They're part of our, our cultural text. I'm not saying cancel them out, ignore them. I think we need yeah. to learn from our history. Like I'm big on, we need to have difficult conversations, be uncomfortable, really see what was happening in the moment. What are the messages? What, what are the impacts? But then I do the turn and say in future and current media, we can do better, we can do differently, and use it as a teachable moment so that we can move our cultural products, but also like the social project of equity further in a more constructive way.
0: Right? Yeah. Uh, Like you said, and it is one of those things. So I'm a I'm a massive James Bond fan. And actually, my introduction to the series was Casino Royale. Um, So I was introduced to James Bond by way of Daniel Craig. And Mm -hmm. um, that movie i'm tr- I'm trying to remember how old I was when it came out, but we watched that movie, it rocked my brain like it was like one of the best movies I'd ever seen, and I you know Hollywood video at that time went in, and I, everything James Bond I just rented I walked out with like a stack of just James right. Bond movies. And it was so interesting. I think the next film I watched was one of the Roger Moore movies. I think it was Man with the Golden Gun. Um, and very different. <laughs> yeah, very different film, but it still, it was still Bond. You know what I mean? So it was, it was interesting going into it as someone who didn't know where to start, didn't know the order to watch them in, and I just kind of whenever I would see Bond, I'd watch it. And so I've just been a massive fan. And it, it does like on the surface. I, I need to ask. Cause I know it's a question on people's mind. Is like. First of all, there's female fans of James Bond. It seems like the ultimate male franchise. I think that's some of the impression people have. But as a Bond fan and someone who's scoured the behind the scenes and the the making of, there's a lot of female influence on how the movies were made. Um Barbara Broccoli is pretty much the showrunner of the series. So I can understand where you're coming in from and and as I'm reading more from you, I'm seeing what people are latching onto, what's special uh, about the franchise. Uh, Before we get into problematic territory, what was your first experience with Bond and what was it that kind of drew you to that character?
1: I cannot tell you what my first experience was. So I was introduced to these films as a child. My dad is a James Bond fan. And so we would have our Sunday dinners in front of the TV. It was a big deal for us to be able to select text. And when you think about like the text of my childhood, we're talking about (laughs) Star Wars like Indiana
0: Jones
1: and like lots of really good stuff, but I would always lean towards the James Bond films Mm. and we would watch the Roger Moore films because they tended to have a little bit of a lighter tone to them. There was fun. There was excitement. There was lightness. We as a family could get together and laugh along with these films. And so my point of contact with this franchise is one through family. It's through Mm. my dad and it's a point of nostalgia for me. And it is something that we still talk about to this day. So talking to him this morning, he says, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm going on a podcast. What kind of podcast? And I'm explaining to him, he's always been very interested and invested in the type of work that I do. And it still remains a point of contact. And when I talk to Bond fans who vary in terms of their gender, uh, they will tell me very similar stories that for them, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it was either a family member or a close friend who is sort of their gateway into James Bond, and then they wanted to, to, as you did, learn more about these types of films.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a fascinating character, and uh, Roger Moore was, he still is. When we talk best versus favorite, you know, my favorite is still Roger Moore, and and it's sure. because he plays to the. He, he, I have a very goofy, strange personality. Yeah. Roger Moore you know, just as an actor, like his biography, reading reading his book, I I just, I love Roger Moore. Like I love his movies. um, and, and I think the reason I checked his out first was also my dad said, I remember growing up with Roger Moore movies and he would explain how bizarre they were and they were funny. And so that was yeah. what I was drawn to. But every actor has really lended something different to the role. And I don't think there's yeah. been a bad Bond. Um, I think they've all brought some different personality trait. Mm -hmm. Um, Who would you say, just setting kind of the foundation, who would you say, whether it's them as Bond or their series of film, what do you think best captures what you love about Bond? Hmm. The hardest question.
1: (laughs) This one's really hard because I lean towards Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan because I feel as Mm -hmm. though... I think that Roger Moore was the best champion of the Bond franchise. He's somebody who was always great with engaging with fans and really, there's all these behind the scenes or him being in public sort of stories about the way that he would have these great fan interactions. And he just embraced being in this role. And I think he's beloved for that reason. And I see Pierce Brosnan as offering the same style of... Mm of Bond. Only the politics of the films are updated. Um, there's less violence towards women in, in yeah. his particular films. And I felt that he really brought back this sense. Like I felt that Goldeneye I was like, do we still need James Bond in 1995? And the film was like, yes, we do. And here's yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. And I look at him and I'm like, you look like James Bond. Like in my mind, Pierce Brosnan visually is the person I align mm-hmm. the most closely with the image of James Bond. And so the two of them, I pick the wittier people because I too have a quirky type of sense of humor. I love to laugh. All of my close friends are very funny, witty people. So when we get together, they talk and I'm just the laugh track in the background. And so I love films that are able to, I love action films, but I love films that are able to have those moments where I can like laugh along.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it, it's interesting you just said, you know, Gold and I were were asking, do we still need Bond in this decade? And that's the yeah. question that seems to circle every new Bond and every film. Like when you look back at the headlines for each new Bond, they're always very negative. And is it doomed? And is this person going to come in? Daniel Craig was the exact same story. Do we need Bond? Right. Do we need a blonde haired, blue eyed Bond? You know, and you know, it's something where that question keeps coming up. It's already starting to come up now that Daniel Craig's run is over. Is like, is that it? Is that the end of Bond? Is that the last we'll we'll see of him? Why do you think Bond has become, not only become an important cultural figure, why do you think he's remained an important cultural figure for now 59 years, almost 60 years?
1: You know, it's that very point. Mm -hmm. You know, James Bond has been around for half of cinematic history. Yeah. And he's not only like a pop cultural icon, he's a global pop cultural icon. Yeah. And we're talking about the fact that I think it was Roger Moore who said like half of the world's population have seen a Bond film. Hmm. And that that's a lot of people, that's a lot of influence. And then if you add to that the millions of other people who are familiar with James Bond through its referencing in television shows and other movies and in music and in and comic books, I've, I I always post on my Instagram when I'm watching other spy TV shows, references to James Bond. They happen all the time. Everybody mentions James Bond. He's so well-known. And I think to have a figure like that... It's incredibly important because we don't really have another series that that does that, that's had that continuity and that longevity, which is one of the reasons why I think it's great to study because like you say, I've got like 60 years worth of text. You can track and trace geopolitics, ideology, gender politics, the changes in the evolution of filmmaking, mm-hmm. like these predate blockbuster action films. And you can see, you know, consumer goods being being brought in, you can yeah. see changes in editing. You can see their attempt uh, with, with CGI with Diet Other Day, which didn't fully work. And then, of course, as CGI has improved, it's, it's more um, seamless integration rather than foregrounding what green screens are. You can really do this tracking and tracing. But I think the question of, of is Bond still relevant is always an interesting question to ask and the fact that people are asking that question and that people are going to see these movies and that we're we're still talking about James Bond tells me that he's still relevant. Mm. He still is relevant whether he represents, you know, um antiquated archetypes of masculinity, whether he's representing differences and change in change and say the role and evolution of women and how he interacts with them. I think people have connected with this character. And I also feel as though people want to see versions of iterations of themselves right. on screen, because at the end of the day, and this is something I've talked about. I talk a lot about James Bond's privilege. He's privileged in every significant identity category that there is. And when you think about it, Bond is um, judged based on his words and his actions, right? The things that he says, the things that he does, but not limited on his identity categories, from the outset, right? He's not disadvantaged socially. There's no institutional, structural, cultural disadvantages that he faces. And so when people who don't have those privileges watch it, we will, I, I want that, right? You know, James Bond can sleep with many people in his films, but nobody's sitting here utilizing descriptors, putting him down for his promiscuity. But if I was to do that, I would be referred to as being a lot of things. You know, da- Daniel Craig's Bond in particular gets angry a lot. And yet as a white man, he's not going to be stereotyped in the same way that, you know, a black man or people of color mm. oftentimes broadly get stereotyped where they have to be and exercise, incredible patience so that they don't get stereotyped as being being angry and upset, and of course, bringing in all those ideas. Mm. And so I feel as though there's just this desire. He has been this figure of privilege um, and excitement and heroism in our society and in culture. And I can understand people saying, gosh, I've emulated that. So there's a whole question there of, of if you don't identify d- demographically with Bond, what does it mean to perform like, say, a white man, right? Mm. And then, of course, why is there this desire to to have somebody from your demographic group step into that role when there's many other types of characters that can be out there. So for me, who's going to be the next Bond? I'm less interested in throwing out like my suggestions. I don't know. Uh, There's lots of actors out there. But I'm more interested in the questions and the desire of people to make their own suggestion. What's leading that? And why is Bond, out of any other hero that is here, why is he the one that seems to track the most?
0: Yeah, yeah. it It is something, something you mentioned was that, you know, the Bond films, and it's something I think about a lot. And it's one of the reasons I recommend people watch through the series is if you're interested in film history at all, yeah. it's a must watch. Even if you don't enjoy the movies or the plots or the characters or any of those things that you should enjoy, um, you can see these perfect time capsules because they were Blockbusters before blockbusters, they were pushing the latest product placement. They were pushing, you know, yeah. Spy Who Loved Me. It was a big deal. They had the or Live and Let Die. It was, I think, it was the first digital watch. You know, it was a big deal. Like, there's so many pieces. You can see the politics. Everything is on its sleeve. There is subtext, but there is all of this just foreground. Like, here's what the concerns were at the time. Here's how women were viewed. Here's how men were viewed. Um, it, it's it's a really interesting series in the sense that it is a encyclopedia, a visual encyclopedia of what the world was at that time. And um, I want to get specifically into your focus because you've spent a lot of time studying, (laughs) writing about the idea of the Bond girl. And when people hear about uh, the the word Bond girl, they get probably a dozen images in their head. Um, Mm -hmm. Ursula Andress in the bikini, um, you know, and 60 Years again, plus of this cinematic mm-hmm. category of the Bond girl. What do you what do you think it is about the Bond girl, you know, type that is you know so captivating to people? Because uh, I, I look at, I posted something about this episode coming up, and people just went on and on about Ursula Andress and kicking <laughs> off this whole this whole line of the Bond girl stereotype. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what is it that captivated people so much about that?
1: Well, I would say this. First, when it comes to the term Bond girl, I think it's important that we consider how we use it. So some people use it to describe virtually every woman who has ever appeared in a Bond film, like regardless of whether she's a protagonist or antagonist, whether she's a primary figure or secondary character who may or may not be named. And you have to understand that different types of women are on screen are going to be treated in different ways based on the type of character that they're playing. And so I use the term Bond girl Uh, for the lead woman protagonist. So the person who spends the most time with Bond, they're on the mission together, they end up together at the end. I think that the romantic, intimate relationship at the end of the film is the defining characteristic of the Bond girl. But I also use this term recognizing its limitations. Referring to grown professional women as girls is really problematic, right? And it is a way to, in some ways, take the woman down a notch. It's a way to emphasize her single status and ability, like girlfriend, to be Bond's girlfriend in the film but if you were to refer to any of the men in the franchise because i'm yet to see bond boy take off as a term let's Uh, start it let's get the hashtag this is it this is the moment (laughs) right but like if i was to refer to to bond as a boy and it happens with sheriff pepper and the way that he treats people in his circle Mm. uh in live and let die he's using it as a way to put down people so if it's a put down in this respect it's a put down when it comes to women that being said I understand the limits, but I also know that this term is culturally pervasive. and when I'm writing and when I'm putting out work, if I don't use that term, people can't search it and find my work. So what I try to do is use the term sparingly. so I'll like use it at first and then I'll say woman protagonist thereafter or 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 women of bond just in order to emphasize like give variety and just not use the term as much. So when it comes though to answer your actual question, to the the arresting image of honey rider you have to think about it first of all ursula andrus is a stunning woman there is no debate about it and this image of having this woman coming from the sea playing upon anything from our, our background in mythology, about the singing sirens, right. Who have these arresting images that Mm. are able to sort of attract men. She's there in this white bikini with this um, uh, belt with a knife that she's somebody who can protect herself, right. She's, she's somebody that is going to be a challenge and bond. If you read the novels loves women who are smart and challenging and competent. That's actually his type. And you have this image of her coming out and the way that she's framed utilizes, Laura Mulvey's gaze theory. And she basically says that the gaze in film is male, that men occupy the gazer approach. So they're the ones doing the look and looking, and we get the point of view shot through the camera. And so the audience is, is, is encouraged to gaze through the camera. And then you have the woman being the quote unquote object, um, of 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 affection or desire or appearance. And she's the one who's being gazed at and oftentimes in maybe clothing of undress or lounging in certain ways, <laughs> you know, the way that her body is. So it's really tapping into cinematic connections. And we, as the audience are encouraged to look at her and appreciate her the same way that James Bond is. And this is a, an image that just captured people's imagination in the 1960s and it's so iconic that it gets replicated and die another day and it also gets replicated in casino royale with daniel craig's bond being the one in the bathing suit with the woman on the shore being like "Ooh, right flipping the male gaze into a female gaze
0: Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, there's two things. One, that's something that I did agree with. Cause I, I get frustrated because people have referred to like M as a Bond girl and they have referred to Money Penny as a Bond girl in different articles and that every female character in, in your, in your essay in a uh, for his eyes only, you said, I argue there's one in every film except for you only live twice. Uh, or, and that, um, that for me was like something I was like, yes, thank you. That's that's 100% spot on. But I also really, I think that gaze conversations really interesting. And I think this is something that comes up, especially I'm a huge fan of the horror genre. And this is something that's mm-hmm. starting to change in the last couple of years is you're starting to see female filmmakers take on, um, you know, take on these projects. And so you're seeing movies like Revenge or you're seeing movies um, where the male gaze is kind of flipped on its head or you're seeing things through female eyes. And it's like watching movies that you've never seen before. Cause you haven't, you haven't seen it presented in this way. Um, but in your essay talking about, um, you know, you were talking about, um, racial stereotypes and how it affects, you know, sexualizing, uh, women in the, in the bond films. It was something I, I knew it was there. Like, obviously like if you don't spot the male gaze in James Bond, like you're, you're not watching the movie, but there were certain things you pointed out. Like, um, when one of the characters is, is kind of seducing him over the phone, like the shot of her on the phone is a very sexual shot. So she's seducing us as the audience and seducing bond audibly. And I thought that was really interesting. And just how every single shot in that film is framed is very much from the bond perspective. It's like, who is this person? And it's, it's making them kind of that maximum alluring quality. Um, when you're looking through the films, like there are those characters who are purely, you know, they get listed in the in the list of things Bond has. He has the car, the gadgets, the girls. They're just another object at Bond's disposal. Um, would you say that? Some, I already know your answer, but would you say that some of the 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 female characters within the Bond series actually are ahead of their time, empowering more of a um, you know progressive view? Of, of women?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Next question. You
1: know, I, I, we're done. Um, I, you know, I look at the 1960s, and this is before the Bond girl archetype and, and the, the Bond formula was really set in stone yeah. where you see women who are more flexible and fluid in their representation. So you have somebody like Dominor Duval who saves Bond in the end. Mm-hmm. She shoots Largo with the harpoon. And Largo is somebody who has um, uh, abused her So we see him abusing her with the cigarette and we know that she is his kept woman and she's scared to leave. And he's somebody who has killed her brother and she's able to come in as the two men are fighting and and be the knight in shining armor, saving Bond in the climax. And then you have in the same film a, a villain like Fiona Volpe, who Bond sleeps with her. And there's this idea of libido. So James Bond, for the longest time until I would say the Craig era, is presented as the lover. Right. Mm-hmm. And and part of his heroism um, and, and heteronormative heroism is about sleeping and bedding women, which is a guarantee of his heteronormative masculinity, yeah. but it's also a, a tipping point. Right. So he's going to sleep with women, good and bad. And if he gets information or access to resources, that is the ultimate goal. And he's trying to bring women to the side of right. Right. Make them good girls, make them align with his mission, his plight, MI6, Britain and all that stuff. Right and women who don't are challenges to that libido. So Fiona Volpe comes in and is just like, I forgot your ego. You think you're going to sleep with me? And like heavenly choirs of angels are going to sing and I'm just going to side with you. And she's like, not this one. And it's a really, to me, this is happening in 1965. She's critiquing Bond's masculinity, his Mm -hmm. libidinal masculinity, which ends up defining him for decades on. And this is happening in 1965. And so I do feel as though there are these images that happen, but I will say this in the vast majority of films, I would say with the exception of no time to die. Okay. uh, um, (laughs) No matter how strong a bond girl is, no matter how strong a woman villain is, there are still secondary figures who play those typical sexualized roles. Hmm. So Thunderball begins with uh, what I think is one of the most problematic sequences Um, in the entire franchise. And that has to do with the attack on Patricia Fearing. So there, James Bond goes to Shrublands and this is um, a a place where he's going to go rest and relax, right? He's not on a mission and he sexually harasses the nurse who's taking care of him. He puts his arms around her. She says, no, I don't want it. He forces a kiss on her. She says, no, I don't want it. And then later when he's attacked by another patient, she thinks it's her fault and he's like, no, 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 no. Um, I won't tell your boss so you won't get fired if you sleep with me and then there's sexual coercion so there's harassment there's assault there's coercion all of that coming together in the same component and the film plays it off as this idea that if you push hard enough and if you try hard enough a no can be turned to a yes and what's worse is the film plays it off as being like and look she she likes him now so it's humorous it's
0: It's, yeah it's, it's played for humor that's i'm glad you brought that up because that's something that um Uh, The director of No Time to Die, Cary Fukunagua, um, he got into a lot of trouble uh, with uh, a lot of Bond fan groups. And every newspaper was running these headlines that, um, you know, director of No Time to Die says that Sean Connery basically raped a woman. That was the headline so often. And um, the thing is, like, when I when I click the article, because I'm a sucker for all these clickbait articles about Bond, I click the article and I'm like, yeah, Did (laughs) like he, he, he really did. And, and it's not just in, um, it's not just in, um, and I also like that Barbara Rockley stepped in and said too you know, it was a different time period and people, um, her exact quote was, um, Bond was a character who's written in 1952. The first film came out in 1962. He's got a long history, and the history of the past is very different to the way he's being portrayed now. And then mm-hmm. she said um, something along the lines of people are kicking and screaming, but they're finally accepting that some of the things that he did weren't okay. And I think, again, that's something that people seem to struggle with, like the fandom surrounding Bond seems to struggle with. But even looking into Roger Moore's period, there's a very similar scene in Octopussy oh, yeah. with him aggressively... You know, going after Maude Adams um, in, in the documentary Bond Girls Are Forever, Mod Adams talks mm. about that. She's like, this feels like a different world, like a different life where this was OK and where this was was acceptable. Um, and so I think it is important to kind of see that lens of like this is 1960s <laughs> mm-hmm. female characters. There's there's a lot of mistakes in the portrayal and the way these scenes play sure. out.
1: And I think it's important to have these difficult conversations. And the one thing that I stress anytime I do a podcast is there's a difference between critiquing the material and criticizing the consumer. Mm -hmm. I'm not sitting here criticizing people for watching these films. All I am saying is... You know, we now have a different lens. We have moved through decades where we've talked about sexual harassment. We coined it. Once you coin something and give it a name, it now has like an entity that we can see, recognize, and address. We're talking more about affirmative consent, the fact that you have to be able to knowingly, willingly, um, not being limited by age, by inebriation, by by force, coercion, guilt, to, to be open to having sex with a person, right? Right we're having these conversations. Now we're having conversations in relation to the me too movement. Mm -hmm. And it's not a movement that we should turn our back on or close our eyes on. Me too means that sexual violence is the normative, sadly, the normative condition for many people and especially women. Me too means I've seen this harassment. I've seen this violence that there, because I have also experienced it. And there's so many people just reaching out and constantly saying, listen to us. This is what we're experiencing. And when we look back on these texts and we see these these, these messages, these messages are going to be consumed in one way or another. This is, this is not how you court somebody. If somebody says no, you say, okay, that's the end of that. And that's irrespective of your sexual orientation or gender. There has to be affirmative consent with all parties involved. And we're moving to that point, I think, in in our cultural discourse. But again, it's that idea that sometimes when you critique something something that people love, they take it very deeply personal. And I'm always very careful of how I phrase my critiques, because at the end of the day, I'm not here to just yell at the wind. I want to have these conversations. And I've had members of the Bond fan community say, we want to hear what you have to say. And that means treating whoever you're talking to with respect, engaging in that dialogue, seeing their humanity and seeing the world through their perspective and simply yelling at people and pointing your fingers, all they're going to do is turn around and walk away and double down on their belief systems. And I think I'm very different than the typical social media conversations that we have, where you have your corner and you have your echo chamber, nothing is happening. We're just swirling in the wind and there's no interconnection. I'm trying to occupy a space in between it. And I have been interviewed for many of those Based on Fukunaguas comments, you know, people are like, what do you think about this? And people all of a sudden I had like thousands of people reading my blog on Thunderball mm. where I describe what's going on. That was put up two years ago. It's been there. You know, I'm working on a paper on sexual violence yeah. in the Ian Fleming novels and Sean Connery films. That book, it's just due to COVID. It's coming out in March, but I've been working and talking about this for a while. Um but if people are ready to listen and have these conversations, then it's really important for me to carve out time. I'm very tired. Carve out time in my busy schedule to be able to have these, these, these thoughtful engagements and get people when they're in the open place to have these conversations while recognizing their dignity. And I will say, Barbara Broccoli is somebody who has handled these conversations very well. So oh, well. Wow. Somebody who has said, like, it is. look, it happened in the past. It's part of the time period. Was it ever okay? No. But- We need to progress things forward and we need to really ask the question, is sexual violence really a tool quote unquote, um, that should be in the arsenal of James Bond. And it also is this broader critique because bonds influence spy culture. Is this something that should be a part of our spy culture or is our spy culture contributing to these broader I- problematic ideas that, that are out there? Because it's not as if sexual violence statistics are decreasing, right? No. No. They're either staying on par or they're increasing. We're just talking about it and bringing it into the light a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I, I love that you mentioned Barbara Broccoli. Cause that's someone who uh, when I left No Time to Die, I, um, I texted a friend who's a film critic. He got to see it a few days early and I was so jealous and I text him and I was just like, man, I was like in Barbara Broccoli, we trust. I was like the way I can't think of a series that has had better showrunners, if you want to use that term, than the Bond franchise. And I think, you know, her starting to take over the franchise, um, I, I mean, mid Brosnan, um, you know, you can see kind of the shift in how the film start addressing these topics. Like you start seeing, you know, M, you know, with Judy Dench's M, which was a, a big, I, I can't imagine what social media would have been like <laughs> during that time period. Um, you know, you've got, uh, even even Penny becoming a, you know, more, uh, a, a more, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but a, a, a less of less of what we'd expected from someone who's, who's working alongside a bond. And, and then you've got, you know, the way the bond girls are dealt with. And then also in Casino Royale, like you mentioned, you get a female gaze a few times, Daniel Craig. I mean, Daniel Craig is objectified in the movies in a lot of ways for the mm-hmm. female audience of the franchise. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of like the way we've got the past, we've got the way that Connery and Moore, and and that's been talked about ad nauseum, I think, by so many people. What do you think of how the later Brosnan and the Craig series specifically has dealt with female characters? I know you have some specific thoughts on Skyfall, but I'm curious about his run as a, as a whole.
1: Well, I think that the Bond films of the 1990s We're asking the question, do we still need bond? Mm -hmm. And they're coming after a six-year hiatus. The world had changed. So the Cold War was over. So geopolitically, there was a lot going on in those films. Uh, But also women have changed. You have the rise of the post-feminist movement, which is a movement that I think is problematic. Um, It tends to be sort of like a white, Western, Northern movement that basically says women have achieved all essential liberties. So there's nothing holding you back. You can embrace right. your sexuality without being judged. Um, And I think that when we look at the fact that pay equity still exists and we just talked about sexual violence still exists, like we haven't hit that. But it's this idea that really influenced spy culture. So spy shows, spy movies, it's there. And so the the question is, how does Bond, you know, occupy this new world? How does he negotiate a place for himself and maybe some of his old school ways in in a climate, in a culture where you have a woman now for a boss who is going to call you out which she does in her first uh reading with him right calling him a sexist misogynistic dinosaur but yeah. she's also a boss who accepts the fact that she needs that skill set which is an interesting i think that's the way that the the franchise accepts it and then she shows that women are uh, in a general sense, that women are capable and competent, whether it's Natalia Seminova, um, or Jinx Johnson, you're having women who are capable and competent in what they do, whether you're a computer programmer, you don't always have to fight in order to be capable and competent mm. in a Bond film. Or you have Michelle Yeoh, who is a fide action superstar, stepping into the role, raising the fighting bar, which Halle Berry then steps in and is and is and is trying to meet or match. And then, of course, you have a, the first woman villain with Electra King coming mm. in and masquerading as a Bond girl and using Bond's libidinal masculinity against him. And so you do have, I think the Brosnan era, has some really fascinating women and Bond trying to negotiate the space. And I think Pierce Brosnan is very good at being like, oh, crap. OK, I need to pivot like it's part of the persona that he presented. Yeah. When we talk about the Daniel Craig era, lots of things are changing. So the Daniel Craig era is a prequel. So it's starting or restarting the world of Bond, but it's an origin story and it's a revisionist film. So what they do is they deconstruct the elements of the Bond film, right? Right. And then they gradually rework them and introduce them back. So, over like the first three films, you're kind of getting origin stories or the re inclusion or reintroduction of, of things like the martini. Um, you get Money Penny, you get Felix Leiter, you get Q, you know, gradually reintroducing and recalibrating things. One of the main things that you get is a change in Bond's masculinity. He is no longer this lover. That's not how he's defined. He's being defined by a model of heroism that might be very familiar to us. It's more of a Hollywood style, hard-bodied masculinity where he's defined by muscularity, but also physical resilience. So he is beaten, battered, and bruised. We're constantly seeing his chest and his wounds on display. Even the crown jewels get affected in Casino Royale. And we see how he bounces back from them, right? And then when it comes to the women of the franchise, the same thing is happening, breaking down this 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 archetype. And in my own work, I've argued, uh, and there's a follow up paper you need to read <laughs> if you want to read <laughs> up to, like with that book, um, where I argue that like the qualities of the typical archetypical Bond girl are split between two or more women. Mm -hmm. So in Casino Royale, it's James Bond who looks like the Bond girl. And so it kind of frees Vesper Lynn to be, in my opinion, the woman, the way that uh, Irene Adler was the woman to Sherlock Holmes. You get Mm -hmm. Vesper Lynn being the woman to James Bond, and there's flexibility for her then to occupy that space. We go into the next film. It's the memory of Vesper Lynn that Bond loves the most. She's still there. Technically, I hope she got paid for that film because she's still there, at least in memory. It frees Camille Montes to come in and just be a partner without a sexual connection to Bond. How great was it to see a woman working alongside with Bond and they don't have sex. They're not showing anything but a professional co-interest in each other. And they build a friendship that is great. And she walks away at the end of the film because she knows he can't connect with her and to me that's a decidedly feminist move Mm. but then you move to a film like skyfall where the bond girl archetype is this red herring so you see eve maybe it's maybe eve's the bond girl no it's money penny and she's demoted and then ooh, maybe it's severine no she's a sex worker um and when we talk about progress i've issues with Severine and her representation um, with Vaughn walking in on her and having sex with her after she's just been like, I've been exploited as a sex worker all yeah. my life. I'm like, then why are you sleeping with her? Um, but she's k- literally killed off as target practice. And then you have Judy Dench's M who... I, I can see why, at least in that film, someone might refer to her as occupying the Bond girl position because she's the one that James Bond loves the most, but she dies in his arms. And there's a lot of allusions to Honor her Majesty's Secret Service um, uh, with, with her death and as well as to Vesper to, to Lind. And so you have this interesting way that this archetype is being played around. And by the time we get to Spectre, you get Madeline Swan, who... I feel as though the this is getting really technical, but the last two films are reversionist. So revisioning is taking different elements and creating something new. Reversionism is trying to revert to the past like, oh, crap, we got to this point. Now we need to go back to a traditional mode or representation. And I see Madeline Swan and I think she's just this composite of all these qualities of women that Bond's connected with. So she has a father who um, wants Bond to be with her. Okay, well, that's Tracy DiVincenzo. You know, she's a doctor who's going to have conflict with Bond and doesn't really want to work with him. So that's Dr. Holly Goodhead in Moonraker. Um, you know, she she has conflict with Bond, right? The, the two of them are, are yelling at each other. Like, they, they don't really get along. Okay, there's a bit of uh, Natalia Simonova from Goldeneye. Like, I can really pick and choose all of the key qualities that have defined these women of the past, including Vesper Lynn, and put it together and give us this woman. And the film tells us this is the most ideal mate for Bond. Well, that's because she's made up of all the key qualities that Bond has really connected with Mm. in the past. And then the question is, where do we go in terms of no time to die? Because Madeline Swan is the first character um, that Bond is dating at the end of a, a film and she appears in the next film, which is true to Fleming. That's more of a Fleming style writing. Like you have a relationship in one book and then the demise at the beginning of the next. This is the, the similar pattern that you get in No Time to Die. But it's it's different. There's different stuff going on in this era that's not typical or traditional.
0: I, I need to ask you about Judy Dench's M because I know you know in Brosnan's films I think she's I think she's phenomenal in all of them and that's something I want to say too is that there's been there's been weaker and stronger characters throughout the series they've been given different roles i think much like bond there's not many bond girls that i would say the actress wasn't great in their part so like you know even talking through moments where you know i want to ask you about you know skyfall specifically but moments where maybe you know m as a character didn't hit where you might think like judy dench was great in every i mean it's judy dench um but i have to (laughs) i I gotta ask because one of the things you mentioned about um, judy dench is that there was somewhat of a regression with her character um so and i this is a point where i did disagree but i'm curious to know your perspective so so in Brosnan's Bond, it's great because she basically steps in and she is just M. Like she is M, but she is a woman. And um, and in Craig's Bond, that carries over. It's one of the mm-hmm. only characters that transitions over into this new generation, thank God. And, you know, Judy Dench in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace has this very... I'm M, and this is Bond. Skyfall does have much more of a maternal story. That's what the yep. I would say the heartbeat of Skyfall is Bond and M's relationship. And yes. um, you know, I I understand where you're coming from. So there's the maternal angle, which is sometimes a in films it can be like the weak thing to just be like, mm-hmm. oh, they're a woman, so that's their trait. That's gonna be their identity. Is oh I'm a mother or I'm this. I think. In Skyfall, I didn't see it as regression, just like leaning on that as a crutch, like kind of like yeah. Black Widow's storyline is like, oh, I'm a monster now. I, I can't have kids. So now I'm nobody. I, in Bond specifically, it made sense to me coming from Bond's perspective because Bond being an orphan, which is confirmed in Skyfall, spoiler yes. alert, um, <laughs> Bond being an orphan, you know, he would be looking for a maternal figure. And so in right. Skyfall, I thought it was. And I've noticed this with no time to die. I won't give spoilers just yet, but you know, Craig's story is just repeated loss over and over again—loved ones, parents, M. Um, so for me, it was a natural step. Like this was bound to happen. Um, why did you see M as a regression in Skyfall? Because I'm curious to hear that a little bit more fleshed out.
1: Yeah, I agree. By the way, I agree that everything is deeply personal. Um, and I will say with Judy Dench's, um, I love thinking about like the Ju- Judy Dench era, like just calling it what it is instead yeah. of just the eras according to the men, because mm. she's also somebody who, I mean, her memory looms large and she appears in No Time to Die. And when you want to talk about like characters with legacies, she's definitely one yeah. that her impact and imprint um, on the fandom. Um, is so large that we want and expect her to continue on in that role. And I will say, I tweeted when I saw, I love Michelle Yeoh. I love Michelle Yeoh. Uh, a picture of Michelle Yeoh and Judy Dench. Um, and I re- just retweeted that from the premiere. I cannot tell you how many people were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I'm like, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Two iconic women, you know, Michelle Yo's having her her moment right now in, in so many ways. Yeah. But Judy Dench still has that, that connection with us, right? More so- than
0: any M before her.
1: More than When any you think M, of M,
0: you think of Judy Dench.
1: That's who I think of, board. and they gave her more. And I think yeah. you were definitely right with like if you're gonna cast Judy Dench, you gotta give her something to do. Don't just leave her there, like in an office. She is the, the M that is more out in the field than anybody else. That of course puts her in danger, right? Mm. Um, when it comes and she's had fallibility, so it's it's not as if leading up to Skyfall, there haven't been questions. I think one of the, the critiques that I have of the M G, Judy Dench's M era is that. It shows that there are traders from within, and then the buck stops with her, right? She constantly has her agents who are being, in a sense, traitors to the system or people who are close to her who are having issues within. And that happens on her watch more so than any other M that that came before. And even when we look at um, Mallory, because we, Bond calls him Mallory, barely even calls him M. So I love that fact that it's like, Judy Dench is still really M, and then there's like Mallory over here. Mallory makes... Really big mistakes. I yeah. we question his logic and his ability. Bond questions it. Um, so I think that's a, a different type of leadership than Judy Dench had. And you saw her trying to like keep the 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 double O program in place, specifically in Skyfall, being taken to task at at, at the the p- politicians. I don't know what they call it in the UK. Some sort of like assembly or the yeah. question period i don't know my, i don't know my british politics very well but she has to account for what is going on and she's constantly being chastised for the way that she's running it but she's trying to run it in such a way that gives her agents like james bond the flexibility and freedom to do what needs to be done and she understands that even in a greater trans, even though there's greater transparency in our world our opponents are a lot more opaque like we can't see them we can't see what's going on in the shadows because oftentimes the traders are within right we're always looking out with a lot of security. Are we really looking um, on the inside? And that's reflected in Daniel Craig era films, because everything is deeply personal. And at a time when we don't have major geopolitical enemies, right? We don't have the Cold War. We can't just be like Soviet Union. There we go. Every film we know who's clearly good and bad. Then the conflict has to be closer to home. And, and I, I get that that's what they did. I think that, Post Skyfall, that's when I get frustrated by it. You know, I can understand this idea of he and Silva being sort of the children of M, the the these, 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 surrogate brothers having a fraternal conflict for the surrogate mother. We see Judy Dench's M, who is getting older, people age, by the way, uh, who is getting older and who's trying to atone for things that she's done in the past and really reconcile them. Um, but when I think about the legacy of Bond and Skyfall he really gets elevated at the expense of women. And I hate when it comes to gender equity, this is, maybe it's tapping into this notion, I hate the scale metaphor for gender equity because it means that in order to say, bring bring women up, you have to bring men down. And I hate that idea because if, if there's a, a notion or a standard of equity, we should all be moving up, right, in this yeah. world. And I felt that what where Skyfall fell short for me was that it was bringing down women at the expense of, 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 of bond. And I think that there could be ways that Judy Dench's, um, just little moments where they could have presented her with just a little bit more capability or competency that I wouldn't have had this feeling, even if she was somebody to, they would never do it, her to be taking the shot with Silva. I mean, that yeah. would have been lovely for me for her to sort of go out on that note. Yeah. But it was just really difficult. Yeah. yeah, just something there because she had MacGyver moments in the other films where she was shown like, I'm going to take this clock and I'm going to boom and I'm going to put something together and I'm going to make something happen. Sometimes I just wished when I watched that film that there was a li- just a little bit more of that component in there. Yeah. Um, but...
0: No, it, got the film well, that we got. I, I think that's <laughs> fair. I, I think that's very fair. I, I have, yeah. I had that was one of the few things because I I agreed with you with so much, but that was one of the things where I just I kept trying to look at it and really no time to, to die. And I'm going to go ahead and just say now we can just spoiler talk. So if you're Spoilers. listening to this, don't get mad because it's going to be hard to talk about this, but. No Time to Die changed how I think about M as a character in general um and yeah. it made me kind of re- No Time to Die made me rethink a lot about the franchise looking back but M specifically the conflict between M and Bond has always been there and there has sure. been you know thinking about the maternal there's also been kind of a paternal element too of like the rebellious Bond boy, <laughs> running mm-hmm. out and causing problems. And then the father figure M trying to clean up the mess. And they really don't ever fully get along. There's always this kind of strange conflict. And you can tell they both care about each other in all the films. Right. But they're, you know, I think the hyper masculinity is kind of there on display of like, we can't show that we're, we're yeah. working in this. So, um, but with, uh, and I always want to say Ralph Fiennes, but it's, Fines, uh but um <laughs> but you can
1: call uh, him whatever you want <laughs> whatever, whatever. Yeah, mallory um mallory. But with
0: his specifically like you know i found myself in no time did i go getting frustrated like why is he making such bonehead decisions but that's a constant theme throughout all of the bond films is that m is wrong and bond is ultimately right and i, I guess that's where skyfall i was like oh this isn't an, an m Story, But I could see, I guess, saying that, I could see how that does go backwards from the M of Tomorrow Never Dies or the M of um, Golden Eye or the M of, you know, the preceding movies, because she was different in that Mm -hmm. regard. She was actually fairly spot on in some places.
1: When it comes, though, to Mallory, I think there's a... Mm. So I think like all of the Ms beforehand were making decisions that were in the best interest of the double O program. Right. And, 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 having faith in the agents, you know, Judy Dench's M is like, I'm not just going to send you to die. You know, I'm going to think yeah. through what is going on and try to make the best decisions possible. The problem with Mallory's M is that he's, Buying into and making decisions that have really bad results, right? So when we talk about No Time to Die, so I would say that the, the last two Bond films, they're not questioning, do we need James Bond? They're questioning, do we need the 00 program? And Mallory's buying into the, is it the five eyes, nine eyes, six eyes, some sort of surveillance program um, with, with major geopolitical powers in Spectre, right? So the whole question is like, do we need boots on the ground when we've got drones? Um, really buying into that. But of course, in a sense, putting people in in positions of power who are traitors to the system. Like, how can you trust all these people, right? Who's going to, who's going to, from that, who's going to mobilize this technology for good or who's going to utilize it for nefarious positions, never really thinking through that that's a possibility. The same thing happens in No Time to Die by trying to create some sort of biological, blood-borne, you know, assassin- thingy, whatever the blood bots or nanobots, right? And his idea is then we won't need double O assassins. Like we could just put it into the system. It's going to get to the person eventually and they're going to get killed off. Not thinking it's going to kill their entire family, you know, or anybody who's part of their lineage and not even thinking, wow, if this gets into the wrong hands, this could cause the end of the world, right? Just not taking that extra step. And again, questioning the double O program and trying to come up with some sort of technological solution to it But causing an incident because he's bought into it. It's his errors that Bond is now trying to clean up. And inspector, it's Judy Dench's M sending a video (laughs) to Bond to actually give clear cut instructions. And then in No Time to Die, it's Mallory sitting there looking up at a portrait of Judy Dench's M. there's this interesting alignment that happens in Skyfall with Judy Dench and the queen right it's in all of Silva's documents that he sends he 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 aligns Judy Dench with the queen so an attack on Judy Dench is really an attack on the queen and country and it's interesting because there's all these allusions to honor Majesty's secret service in no time to die and in, in Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, Bond is constantly looking at the picture of the queen on the wall. So when he wants to leave the service at the beginning and when he wants to when he does leave the service at the end to save Tracy, he's looking and communicating with the portrait. That portrait doesn't make its way into No Time to Die. Instead, it's Judy Dench's M hmm. that Mallory is sitting there looking up as big decisions and big things are taking place on screen. Um, and she's emblematic of so much more. Like she is... Um, the matriarch, I would put it that way, of the Daniel Craig era. I'm not sure if I would call her the matriarch of the Brosnan era, but she was gradually put into or or slid into that that role um, uh, as matriarch. And so I find it very interesting that he, that Mallory's sitting there being like, oh crap, I screwed up. Now I need Bond to get me out of this situation. I can't rely on my double O's. I have to rely on James Bond to do it and there's going to be a cost to it. Hmm.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and it's definitely something I really liked. Again, I liked that there, there was so much history in No Time to Die that kind of calls back to the franchise and even the portraits of the M's in the, in the one room where, um, Mallory's sitting or Judy Dench's is, and then you can see the M from, uh, Dalton's, uh, Bond. Um, it was interesting seeing like kind of the answer to do we need Bond comes up a lot in each of the Craig movies. It's like, we tried these other alternatives, like you mentioned, and we need a guy on the ground and that's gotta be James Bond. But also on top of that, you've got people shouldering these legacies behind them, you know, like Mallory with, with M and it's kind of like the reverse version. So like you had, you know, you had M and GoldenEye who, coming in as an actress into a role that had been male-dominated for so long is now going, I have to shoulder this legacy, and I have to become uh-huh. not only – it wouldn't have been enough for her to be equal. She had to be better, which she was. And then coming into this new M, into Mallory, same thing. You're coming in, it's like, I'm following Judy Dench. And then in the films, you're following like this character who is this – like, I, I mean – impressive, like you said, matriarchal, like strong, powerful leader. And Mallory time and time again, does not live up to that. You know, No. Um, I'm sorry. Were you, you going to say something?
1: No, I, I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking, I mean, when we talk about the, the, the maternal pivot that happens in the Craig era, she's not just a strong figure, but she's somebody who guides and nurtures James yeah. Bond and, right. and into the role. And she's constantly telling him like, don't cause a diplomatic Issue, Um, yeah. Yeah. or you know, she's the one who contextualizes the death of Vesper Lynd. If you read Casino Royale, the novel, it ends with Vesper Lynd dying, and Bond says, "The bitch is dead," and that's that's the end of the novel. Whereas in the movie, then you have Judy Dench being like, "Well, wait, Bond, let me explain to you what happened." Right, mm-hmm. and she's there, and she's offering clarity, but she's also offering comfort, and she treats him as a huge like she understands his humanity and promotes that component like we need to push forward and and build ourselves as human beings as we're james bond like you need to have like like work through this emotional life Mm -hmm. and maybe now you realize that you probably shouldn't date people uh, or that there's consequences and there's a broader conversation about like families being unsustainable in the world of bond um that marriage is unsustainable as we have seen multiple times um the question of can you have children will it split your loyalty between queen and country your job um or your family and and time and again bond has made decisions when it's close when he when he falls in love he's going to make decisions that side with His family, and it's shown to be incredibly unsustainable. And so it's interesting when you talk about the familial turn, specifically with her, even though the previous M's have had sort of like a fatherly thing. And then you put Q, played by Desmond Llewellyn, who's also Mm. a grandfatherly thing. Like it's more of like a paternal lineage thing that's been happening for a while. It's interesting when you pivot more towards a maternal figure being this guider, because then things can be a little bit more personal. Then we can talk a little bit more about emotions being generated. But it also goes to show that your work family is supposed to be seen as being um, preferenced or be, or seen as being more important than any other type of personal family that you have. And it's very difficult to, to be both. And yeah. I, I don't think we've seen a figure in the world of Bond who has really been able to manage. I even think about the pre-credit sequence in Casino Royale where Bond for his second kill um, telling the guy, like, I know where you keep your gun. I know you're a traitor. And when the guy dies, he goes, like, he flips in his chair and he flips a family portrait onto the ground. Like, even then the franchise is like, you can't be a father. You can't be a husband. Like, these things are virtually unsustainable. So I think there's there's a lot going on in the Daniel Craig era when it comes to the maternal pivot, the promotion of family. And of course, then that all works with the insular the the inside looking um narratives that you get in, in the daniel craig era films yeah. like it all kind of it, it makes sense that things are deeply personal
0: right in the world and of he following. has siblings q is a sibling character and yes. um, money penny is very much a sibling character i feel in in the yep. films talking about untenable family relationships we're really going to get into spoilers here here we
1: go let's do <laughs> this.
0: So, let me just ask broadly, what were your thoughts on on No Time to Die? Because again, for me, it was a reframing experience in how I interpret uh, all of Craig's era specifically. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like I said, made me go back and look at it. But what was your take on the film itself, like overall broadly?
1: It depends which screening. First screening, I got to the end and I was like, screw this. I was so hurt as a fan. Oh, my gosh. I was inconsolable. I did a podcast right after. Should have waited because I was just like, I don't know what to think and feel. Because, you know, as somebody who is a huge fan of this franchise, seeing this icon die, it didn't feel right to me. And I'm not alone in this. There are a lot of people who are like, hmm. And then, of course, with reflection, I can contextualize it that there are many films when this film was made. So this film was made in the late 2000 2010s, sorry, uh, at a time when Logan Wolverine dies and Iron Man dies and like Black Widow dies and people are dying. All of our heroes are dying. And I think there's something about this particular moment that I need to think about. This is a pre-pandemic movie, right? Hmm. Really tying into what is going on at that time. But it's coming out in a post or current pandemic moment when I'm already vulnerable, um, you know, with isolation and uh, just feeling just really down about the world and, and the status of where we are. That to see a movie that's of the, this pre-COVID climate, it didn't hit right. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. And it's a movie about a a disease spreading and killing people. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And so it didn't, it didn't fully hit right. I was very upset by the ending and I didn't want that to happen, but I did watch it a second time. And that's when um, things, I have a a co-contributor on James Bond and friends named Phil uh, Nobile Jr. And he talks about like watching it and having like a second and third watch smoothing things out because once I got through the emotional shock, which I couldn't think about anything else. Then I was able to go back and rewatch it. And my feelings towards various characters changed because I knew how the filmmaker was taking information, utilizing information, framing my, 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 viewpoints. Whereas I can go back with fresh eyes and like, I actually like Madeline Swan the second time around. I was kind of mad at her the first time. Cause I thought she's betraying bond, but then I find out, no, I'm being manipulated by the filmmaker to think that. Yeah. And then I go back and think, Oh, dear. Like, can you imagine? And I'll, I'll just sort of give the recontext. So she has a, a flashback. So the pre credit sequence actually has the point of view shot of a flashback of a woman in her backstory. Never happened before. Right. She's she's you know, uh, she it's, it's about uh, an assassin killing her mom, trying to kill her, uh, surviving it. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole bunch of things that happen in this scene where We are told that she's the daughter of Spectre and that she's betrayed Bond and we're connecting all of these images together that her big secret is that she's been working for Spectre all along. We're being encouraged to think she's betraying Bond so we understand Bond breaking up with her, right? That's what's being put towards us. But when you watch the film a second time, you know that she's actually pregnant and she's having this flashback about what it felt like to be a daughter, watching her mother die, dealing with the repercussions of her father being an assassin and a murderer, um, having people come after the family. And so you have her having this image and then wanting Bond to put to to rest all of his past so that he doesn't bring that into their family. Mm. That's really what she's pushing for. And so to see her through that light and, and what she wants is to be a good mom and for them to be like a good, solid family It totally changed the way that I saw everything that she did, hiding her pregnancy, not talking about having a child, doing everything that she could to safeguard that child, not knowing what James Bond was doing. And of course, not admitting that he was the father of her child. That's a very different type of reading. And and then I found that the ending was a lot more powerful for me because I was, was, yes, I was sad that Bond died. The second time around, I was sad for Madeline Swan Hmm. and I was sad for his daughter. Not having the opportunity to get to know him and connect with him, and so that's why I encourage people. If if you loved it the first time, I wish I was you. Um, but if you watch if you watched it and you weren't sure, give it a second shot because it it changes. There's this idea of the polysemic nature of of, of of text, right? And so texts have different meaning based on the information you have. So if you watch The Matrix, if you don't know anything about Alice in Wonderland or the Bible. You can understand the matrix. But if you know Alice in Wonderland, then seeing the follow the white rabbit on tattoo on, on Trinity's shoulder, that means something. If you have a background in any sort of biblical knowledge, even Christianity, then you'd understand what Trinity is. Um, and all of the the one and all of these religious references, you get a different type of reading based on the information and the knowledge you bring to it. And I feel as though this is a film where we have a filmmaker who knows what he's doing. Um, and yes, oh. if you know the Bond references, or if you don't, you'll have different readings. But this is the film, once you have all the knowledge, I think it changes the way that you feel about the characters uh, going on and, and moving on. So I think the knowledge I brought the second time around really helped me to connect with it. And I was, I was a lot more, I'm a lot more positive about it. The second time around, the first time I was just like, what is this? What yeah. did you do to me? Right. The second time I was like, okay, I get, I get what you're trying to do here.
0: Yeah, it was. I, I've only seen it once and I went to the IMAX like pre-screening, like I was like, I cannot yes. wait. And, you know, I had heard I had heard whispers, you know, and it's hard to know when moves kind of I'd heard whispers about Bond dies at the end. So I was sure. kind of I didn't believe it. Like there was part of me that was like, Oh no, he doesn't, you know, like they're gonna have some kind of weird like allusion to it. And, um, but I was already emotionally prepared for the possibility that that would happen. And 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 to be honest, when I heard the rumor, I was like, if they do, I'm going to be really upset because like you can't yeah. do that. Watching the movie, so there's two things that happened really big for me. So one, Specter, Madeline Swan, that relationship didn't work for me. in Spectre at all. That was one of the things that really hurt yes. Specter for me. Was you have Vesper in Casino Royale and you want them to be together as much as Bond wants to be with her because she is his match. Like they are. And then going into Skyfall, uh, going into Skyfall and then Spectre, like Quantum of Solace has a really good relationship between him and Olga Kralenko's character in that movie. Like I, I love Quantum of Solace. I think it's underrated. Um, Me too. I I love that movie. Skyfall does like Bernice Merlot's character is to me, was very creepy when I first watched it because of the the t- just the way the scenes are edited together. It was like, here's yeah. this trauma, and now Bond is like taking advantage of her. And it didn't feel same- very
1: good, did it? <laughs> yeah, it,
0: it, that's exactly what it was. And then even earlier in the movie, you have the um, you have uh, the relationship with the widow. You know, in the, in the beginning oh. of the film, you know, which is again very weird timing. Like funeral, then boom, there's this. Then comes Madeline Swan, victim of severe trauma. You don't know to what extent, aside from her dad's crazy in the in that movie. But, yeah. you know, again, it felt to me like there's a – the age thing – it's funny because I've watched Bond for so long. But it was like the first time I was like, she feels so young for him, yes. which she is. But then also like Bond – so her story is that she lost her father. And I felt Bond in – Spectre was playing both the father role to her and also the lover role. And mm-hmm. It just it didn't hit me the right way. And I didn't think her character was very interesting in Spectre the first time I watched it. Or the first two times I watched it. Uh, the last time I watched it, I kind of... I appreciate her performance with what she had in, in the yes. last time. She
1: does what she can with what she's given. Right. Like, Which like, this is, is not, not a knock on Leia Sado. No, she's okay.
0: she's phenomenal. and And <laughs> yeah. so No Time to Die made me love Madeline Swan's character. I want to watch mm-hmm. Spectre again, knowing what I know now, but like, I was going, this is the woman for Bond, and I buy this relationship. And I think it is, they cheated a little bit, I think. And they cheated a few times in the movie with how they make you feel about things by playing right. on what you already know. So like you mentioned, Madeline Swann is this amalgamation of all of the Bond girls and the best characteristics of them. Right. So mm-hmm. the traumatic backgrounds, they're they're capable. She, you know, they're intelligent. They're, you know, all these different things. So she is kind of like they cheated and kind of made her this perfect woman, <laughs> this Frankenstein's monster of different characters. But also, the film really plays on, you know, the the beats that we do love in the series. The the references to our Magic Secret Service is such a like. If I think too much about it, it kind of bothers me because they play so yeah. much on the emotion that that really was built up and paid off in Honor Magic Secret Service. But they use that to kind of hack your emotions <laughs> in mm-hmm. the score for No Time to Die. And I I I thought it was really interesting, but it was it was something I was nervous about going in was Madeline Swan. Because I did not buy mm-hmm. that character at all. And yeah. by the end of the film, like you said, I was sitting there going like, one, this is tragic because mm-hmm. Bond is never going to have any of this. And then You know, two. It was like Madeline Swan from her character's perspective is also in that same cycle. It's it's a constant cycle of loss and and pain. Um, But it, I was surprised how well their relationship worked. I was I was terrified going in that I was gonna like Mm -hmm. have to sit through (laughs) those two another uh, movie for for a long time. But um, but
1: I think you know I had the same problems with Madeline Swan. So I I'm not again. The fact that I like Madeline Swan, I, I mean, we're, we're talking about turning a big corner, Yeah, but same, I've been yeah. relating it to it's a filmmaking thing. So when I think about Bond's two across the franchise, his two closest relationships, the ones that he's loved the most, if you watch Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is to me, it's over referenced like you can give me. This is a script writing thing in No Time to Die, and 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 the script writers, uh, Purvis and Wade. Like you only do it once. You don't need to like knock me over the head like it's whack a mole. That's what I feel like they always do when they're like, I got to remind you and remind you and remind you. I'm like, I got it the first time. This is time. James
0: Bond, in case you forgot. Like <laughs> we we,
1: we got son. this, you know. And and yeah. I think that sometimes, the, it's why I love cinema. Uh, from different countries because they don't do that sort of stuff. They're like, we respect you as an intelligent viewer. You can figure it out, right? Um, but when it comes to to relationships, so in Honor, Majesty, Secret Service, I'm not the biggest fan of George Lazenby as James Bond, but that doesn't actually matter. What we get to see in that film is we get to see the evolution of, of Tracy DiVincenzo, we all get to fall in love with her because the film gives us space. We see her at the beginning. We've heard about her backstory. We watch her fall in love, and Diana Rigg is brilliant. Okay, the camera yeah, loves her. Great. We and even like those those subtle, like the subtlety of her actions. Right, she is somebody who just like she carries that whole film. I it's it's you know she's she's, she's James Bond. Yeah, yeah it's her film. And like, we watch it and we fall in love with her. And we see her go from being sad to being hopeful. We watch her in action. We see her on her wedding day and she's so charismatic. I fall in love with her, which is why I'm devastated by the end. But the film gave space for this moment for me to connect with her, regardless of whether or not George Lazenby's Bond. We can debate that, um, his performance in the film. Then I think about Vesper Berlin, And I loved Vesper Berlin because of James Bond. It's Daniel Craig's reactions to Vesper Lynn that make me love and buy into the relationship. He's sitting there when she's talking on the train, and it's Daniel Craig's subtlety in action. He doesn't get credit for this. His subtlety of just, you can Mm -hmm. see him like an eyebrow raise. He's so intrigued and taken back by this woman. You can tell that he's interested. You can tell that, like, it's love at first sight. He's falling for this woman who's smart and capable and is, you know, definitely not taking any of his crap, and she's holding her own. And you see the tenderness that he shows her, right? You know he is this blunt instrument, but when he's with Vesper, he shows the vulnerability. And the two of them in the shower when she's traumatized, sitting there just licking off the, the 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 imaginary blood off her fingers. Like I'm falling in love with them, right? You can you can scent and you can feel the bond. So when she dies, and she's dying to protect him, and you see the way that she dies and pushing him away. All of it is, and you see him crying over her, her her body. I get it all. Like, I'm with you. I'm feeling it. So I, I I felt it because of Diana Rigg in the film allowing me in one sense, and I felt it because of James Bond in this other sense. When I get to Spectre, I am told by the filmmakers that she's the perfect match. Yes. I don't see it. There is no where for it to breathe. There is no true show of affection. And I don't feel it because I feel like they're just trying to remake Vesper like their their own their train sequence in one here's another train sequence there's a this there's a that and I feel as though they're telling me and and Sam Mendes is like guess what she's the one she's the one she's and I I don't I don't react that way you're like and no so, she's not <laughs> I'm like I don't how do I know that she's the one like you might like her as an actor and and certainly Barbara Broccoli definitely loves Leia Sado but it the film didn't tell me that I like I didn't fall in love with her and I didn't feel bonded because it didn't show me it. So going into no time today, I'm like, oh, crap, what is this going to be? And maybe that also factored into my initial impression when he broke up. And I'm like, good, she's gone. Um, Because I really didn't know what to think about her feeling. And it's nice to see Bond break up with somebody because that's, that's life. And don't date within your work circles. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But what I think that they gave her in this was... For her to, like, this is also her, like, James Bond has his own narrative, she has her own narrative arc Mm. that centers on being pregnant, making decisions, having to make sacrifices, trying to protect her child, trying to balance maternity and, and violence, which I felt that the film was a little bit, like, it relied on 80s representations of action women, where you can, you it's this articulation that you can't give, like bring life into the world and take life at the same time. So you have to flip flop. I call it being fragmented or the disconnect. You can be heroic or you can be maternal, but you can't be both at the same time. Mm. And I, it's, it's just me watching it. I I mean, I, I teach a course on women in action. So I'm just like, Ooh, this is old school uh, logic. But anyways, uh, but I did feel as though it was really about her and her emotional arc, um, that to me carried, helped to carry the film. There's, there's Bond's emotional arc, but with her, it was like the two of them were singing in harmony uh, mm-hmm. near the end of the film. And that, I mean, and can I just add something to this? Yes. This is also the only Bond film where he does not sleep with another woman other than the woman that he's truly in love with. Hmm. the only Bond film. Now, what he does off camera, no idea. When Nobi, you know, comes over to his house and you see him, like, he looks shocked. He's like, I guess we'll go to the bedroom. Like, you know what I mean? Or when Ana de Armas is, uh, her character Paloma is measuring him out. He's like, like, are we supposed to have sex? Like he's not, you can tell he's not interested in having sex with anybody. Like he's like, are these the actions I'm supposed to take? It is very refreshing to see him not sleep with other women because then when he says to her, I've never loved anybody as much as I loved you, then I believe it because I'm not seeing him copulating with other women. And then being like, I thought that that was the weak spot of Honor Majesty's Secret Service was when George yeah. Lazenby's bond is like sleeping with all these women yeah. in his Gloria and then he's like,
0: bond. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then he's like, Oh, but okay. I'll marry you. And I'm just like, mm, you, you just had sex yeah. like two days ago.
0: So yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious too. So one thing that I think is, a so there's people that complain about. Uh, so, yeah. So when the, when the movie was coming out, there were people that complained obviously about, um, is it Lashana or Lashon?
1: Lynch.
0: Lashana, yeah, Lashana, Lashana Lynch. Lynch. There was yeah. a lot of people and that were complaining, and and you know the the headline, you know, the woke Bond. I was like, this seems very racist. That's just because she's a black female actor. This is now a woke Bond. And also, as a Bond fan, when when it was rumored she was the new 007, I was like, that doesn't mean she's a female James Bond. Stop saying that. It sounds so ignorant to the whole series. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. One thing that I w- one thing that I'm feel unsure of is her character in the film. And and the mm-hmm. reason is not because she's not good because she is very good at it. It's not because her scenes aren't cool because they are super cool. Um my my thing that I feel unsure of is sometimes I think you know, we talk about like performative activism on my other shows sometimes. Like people that, sure. you know, they do things to. Um, they'll have a woman on a board to say like, "Oh, we're more equal. And we have different voices on this," but it's really not that tokenism. I, I, I see sometimes happen in movies, um, especially in the Bond series. You see this happen. The way they show that a female character is strong is they make them a female reflection of who Bond is, or if or mm-hmm. who Bond should be, and so they just make them really tough and almost masculine um yeah. instead of letting them be a who
1: they are you know
0: yeah who they are or be more <laughs> feminine but also be very tough and like you know yeah. all those sorts of things um so i you know someone um uh, lois uh, childs talks about this she says like in my period of bond you know, I was dressed in these big flowy, you know, outfits, like it wasn't supposed to be form fitting, it wasn't supposed to be sexual, like that was kind of their reaction to the feminist era. Um, There wasn't you weren't allowed to be sexy, you know, and yeah, I was kind of curious if you thought they went overboard Mm -hmm. in trying to make Lashana Lynch stand out as being like a female bond, or if you appreciated her character in the context of the story, like being kind of just a, a tougher by the books agent.
1: Like, I'm still trying to think through my thoughts on Nomi, and so me And me too. A- I have no idea. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think she was great, but I also was like in the story, I didn't, I feel like it was, it was almost like a weak spot, like how they used her. Like, I I feel like she was almost perfect in the story, but also I'm like, I wish, I don't know mm-hmm. what I was expecting to do, but I wish, yeah. I feel like there's something I wanted to happen that just didn't, but I don't know what that is.
1: So the the James Bond franchise doesn't have the greatest track record when it comes to representing women of color. Oftentimes they're hypersexualized, and there was all this conversation about like if you cast uh Lashana Lynch, is she going to be like Grace Jones, right? Because yeah. they're both black women, so which she
0: has to- a very similar introduction to, mm-hmm. or not to Grace Jones. Oh, so, I'm sorry, she has a very similar introduction to Rosie in Live and Let Die,
1: right? But very the difference similar. between But the difference is that Rosie Carver's um, wig was taken off her Mm. and it's used as a point of humiliation, whereas they recalibrated it here and had Lashawna Lynch have the the authority and and the autonomy to to take it off if she wanted to. And so I feel as though what they what they did, and I think they did it fairly well, was not revert to racial stereotyping when it comes to black women. And I think they were taking a lot of steps. I think one criticism, the, the criticism that I have is near the end when the scientist looks at uh, Nomi and says like, well, uh, I'm just creating something to take, you know, to kill off your race. And I was like, no, no, we were doing so well with not actually highlighting or spotlighting or tokenizing race yeah. that, I, I, that, that line didn't and have the, to be in it.
0: That bothered me too. And that's yeah. where shes that's where too, she, sw- it's the only time really where she goes off the books and yeah. she g- responds in anger Yep. And takes him out. And yeah. I thought one of the strength points a few minutes before that was when she's like, he's really annoying me. And Bond says, well, go ahead and shut him up. And she just hits him and takes him with them. There right. wasn't this instant like, bang, you're dead. Yeah. And it they did lean into the racial card. There, which they out. didn't
1: have to. Yeah, I mean, they didn't. It, go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, no, no. It, it could have. Um, yeah. Her being annoyed by him just as being an annoying person was enough. <laughs> That's right? all he needed to be. Um, yeah. yeah. And they I... didn't
1: explain the plot at, like, look, a deficit of this film is we have no idea what the actual plot was. Who's being targeted? How they're being targeted? Is it random? Is it targeting world leaders? Is it, tar- like, there There really wasn't any explanation. We saw lots of maps and mm-hmm. we saw lots of graphs, but you didn't actually tell me what Safin's plan actually was. Like, he likes things to be neat, but who are you picking or is it arbitrary? Like, yeah. and so for me, that line comes out of, nowhere. yeah, And 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 it was one of those things where like, for me, one of the most important things in, in action films, when we talk about like women in action is unremarkability. Uh, there's always a backstory. There's always a need to talk about why a woman is different and why she's why an strong. exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why you're strong. And usually it's something to being a daughter, a mother, or a victim of sexual assault. There's something that's then quote unquote, allowing you to step in. And what I want to see is I want to see people in action and, and make it unremarkable that, yeah, a woman can be yes. a double O agent. And we don't have to talk about the fact that she's a, that she's a woman. She's just an agent. And to me, there's powerful. There's power in unremarkability. It's like Q in this film um, waiting for his date and his date. The gender that we get is 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 it's a man. Yeah. But it's unremarkable. It's mentioned, yes. but we move on. We don't have to be like, "Look what's going on in the film." I was
0: waiting for a humorous scene around that, like a whole thing, but it wasn't. It was just a cast aside line. Yeah, because I,
1: that, that's that's the power of unremarkability. It just is, and it's represented. It's allowed to exist, but we don't have to explain it away or describe what's going on.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, like I said, I, Lashana Lynch is great in it, and she she plays her role well, which is to. Be kind yes. of the arrogant, cocky agent, which right. I think she does She does great in. And I did like, you know, they didn't call out too much. Like they played off that it was crazy that someone replaced 007, not that a, they didn't even address like, oh, it's a woman nope. really that, ad- you know, replaced him. Um, I want to speak to the other female character in the film. Can I
1: add, Can I mention one more thing? Yes, go ahead, What yeah. I wanted more, I wanted more action. I hmm. know she trained really hard. I saw her give a sidekick at one moment and that's it. Other than, like, shooting a gun on the side, she actually doesn't have physical action sequences that are on, like, she's driving a car, but she's not in a chase sequence. Like, they, they've they put her there, but I don't think they gave her enough. Like, if she's a double O. Yeah. They didn't, give. in my opinion, give her enough. And my biggest critique is the fact that at the end of the film, she just goes off in a rowboat and you still have this entire facility and Safin to deal with, and you just leave James Bond. Because no. at the end of the day, you had two 007s, and there's a way to include her in the action. They could split up stuff. You know, right. he can still sacrifice himself, and she can get away and be like, oh, my gosh, I can tell you the story about James Bond because, like, I got saved and he didn't. But there's a way of keeping them here. And I feel this is the, the the issue or the error that I have with this, that in order for him to have that final scene, we took away the other o. In the film, which is like the same thing. I I say this with Weylin in Tomorrow Never Dies. Like, where'd she go? You have Michelle Yeoh, who's a better fighter than Bond. She can still be doing stuff. She's ahead of the
0: whole movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And all of a sudden she's just not there. And then she's randomly captured. I'm like, yo, this is not how you write a film. I feel like there could have been a space for her to still be doing something while Bond is doing his action. I just don't like this idea that she rows them to shore. And I mean, I get it, safeguarding women, no women die in this one compared to Skyfall where lots of women are demoted and die. You know, I, I I can see them riding the ship, but it doesn't mean just like pushing her away. So I think maybe that's what I'm missing is like, I wanted that, uh, like, let her storm with Bond going up the staircase, let her have some more fighting moments. And I think I would have been like, this is why she's the other double O.
0: Right, right. Sorry,
1: yeah, I, I, <laughs> I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> no, there's so,
0: much, and like I said, there's so much I could talk about. Um, I, I'm curious to um, with on a day, Armas or Armas, um, who I didn't know what her role would be in the film. Um, right. her character to me when I was watching when they when they first introduced her because I was kind of surprised because I didn't expect her to be funny and she is the funniest. Yes, character in the movie. When she yeah, – because in the in the other scenes, I thought she would be kind of the primary, like, one of the agents and all that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. the way that I instantly processed her in my brain when she came on the screen was, oh, this is Britt Eklund's character in Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. and yeah. she comes in and she's kind of like the newbie agent and she has all this. But the difference is, is like, there's nothing for Britt Eklund past that. Like she gets yeah. to just be the, you know, and again, she's fine in the, in the role, um, but she really in the list of bond women, like she's near the bottom, I think, as far as characters and what she's given to do, like.
1: Interesting. These, these these are fighting words.
0: Right now. Um, but, but, um, <laughs> no, but, but I think as I, again, like, and a man with the golden gun is one of my favorite sure. Bond films. but in the, in the list of things people are given to do in our movies, I think her character. Oh, never you're talking gets about
1: Brit e- or Eklund. You're talking about. Are you talking about Britt Brit Eklund, Eklund or Ana Darmas?
0: Britt Eklund. Oh
1: yeah. Okay, okay. I'm with you. Okay. I thought you were talking okay. about Ana Darmas, okay. and I'm like, I was like, I was like, talking? interesting.
0: <laughs> I'm very curious to hear your specific <laughs> no, no, reason no, 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 no. why you think that uh, why you think Britt Eklund's character in no, no, Golden no. Gun* is <laughs> the best. No, she's um, terrible.
1: She's at the bottom. Okay, God, Okay. It. Yes,
0: it. I was going to say her character is is very disappointing, but Ana Darmas gets all of the same kind of introduction being the newbie yes. agent, but then she gets a payoff that she's not what she seems to be. She's got the interesting bubbly. And this is where I like when I see representation of a character and they're made to be strong is like, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you have to overcompensate. This is what I was getting to earlier with yeah. Lashana Lynch. Lashana Lynch is like almost overpowered. And it's like a joke, like how much better and cooler and she can fly a plane and she can do this with on dare It's like, Oh, she can be funny and silly. Not interested in you know. She's very attractive. Like I'm not gonna lie, she's a very attractive person. My wife was sure. like watching trailers, like she's beautiful, and stunning, you know, absolutely stunning. You know, yeah, she's she's gorgeous, but she's not interested in just having sex. So she gets. They don't desexualize her, but they also okay. don't make her. They don't sexualize her, and they also give her the chance to just have this ability that is right. a shock but it's only a shock because they it, it's a shock because it plays off the idea of like oh she's going to throw away goofy side agent and now here come yeah. up the guns um i loved her like that i she's think she side. was the most it was the most fun part of the movie for me and it was the part where mm-hmm. i was like this is what a bond girl really should be when they when they show up mm-hmm. on the scene like this is it this is such a great yeah. balance of everything um anyway I, that was just me waxing on about how no, but, I, but I'm curious if your take was the same.
1: I, I she's, she's the highlight of the film for yeah. me. Um, and like the movie, I, I, yeah. I, well, it's interesting. Cause like, I disagree with the sexualization because when you look at okay. her dress, her dress is very low cut. We know that things are, are definitely, um, taped in place. So nothing falls short, but there's a lot of references in her, in her clothing. So you have her dresses reminds me of Anya Amasova from the spy who loved me. My favorite. She has, yeah. So, so it's the dress, but it's like it's a more plunging version. She has slits on the side, which facilitate action. But she has the garter gun, which reminds me of Pam Bouvier from License to Kill. And then her necklace, if we really want to go there, is a bit of like Paris Carver from um, Tomorrow Never Dies. Right. So hmm. like iconography is showing us like, oh, she's typical Bond girl, attractive, alluring. And she comes across. She is very... Uh, endearing and charismatic. And we're sitting here being like, oh gosh, who's Bond partnered with? But what she does is she engages in what Marianne Doan has argued as a masquerade of femininity. And many women in action do this. Michelle Yeoh in Hong Kong action in her early films used to do this all the time. And it is presenting yourself as being say overtly feminine um, to hide your possession of skills and abilities that are oftentimes associated say with men. Um, it could be violence, aggression, a skill set, even intelligence, and sort of playing off like, ha, ha ha I don't really know what's going on. Charlie's Angels did it all the time. Like, ha, yeah. ha ha here we go. And then boom, when we're in serious heroic mode, we can kick your butt. And what I love about it is she comes in, in heels, in that outfit, um, and she kicks butt she runs out of ammunition and she's like all right screw it and she's using the the actual gun as like battering people like it's a bat and she's kicking and jumping and rolling and my favorite thing is when she's on the ground and it's an overhead shot and she's laying down and she takes the gun and kills three people just laying down and i'm sitting here like i've got chills i'm like this is what i want this is what i wanted in action and i guess i then i contrast it with lashana lynch on the outside literally just like shooting a gun You know Mm. what I mean? Like not engaging in the same way. And I'm just like, this is what I want. And what I also feel as though her partnership did was it gave me the Daniel, uh, the Daniel Craig version of James Bond. As a Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan loving person, it gave me the finally an articulation of what I wanted to see because he was light, he was bright, he was partnering with an engaging woman on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell the friendship that he and Anna de Armas have; they're great together on screen, and it doesn't have to be sexual yeah. in nature. And he wasn't weighed down by family drama or trauma. He was just, for me, for a moment, the Bond that I always wanted wanted him to bond just going on a mission and completing a mission because he had to. Yeah. And I, well, like to me, all of that, even with Lashana Lynch coming in and having their be yeah. like we're all on this racing to the spot. Each getting other. each other's yeah. Way. Yeah. I love, I love the conflict that they were, that they were utilizing. And I felt that she just brought lightness and brightness in a way that many of the other, it's a very, it's a, it's a heavy film, right? There's yeah. always a lot going on. She brought in lightness and brightness. And I was like, okay, here is, is, is the sunshine right here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You needed that Cuba scene or else the movie oh would God. have been so bleak. Um, but, but no, I love that you said that. And, and I'll kind of wrap <laughs> up on one note. Cause I think this is my biggest issue with the movie. I'll okay. get to it in a second. But one of the things you just said is exactly what's been interesting to him about, about Craig. Because I think Craig has been... He's been included in the conversation as being like the newer Connery, the newer Dalton. Like he was that edgy. Like very compared to Dalton when you really get yeah. into it. And I think that's a fair comparison. I think the reason we think that is because he's the closest to the book version of Daniel Cra- of, uh, of Daniel Craig. That's how much he's James Bond. <laughs> of James Bond. Um, yeah. but, but in Craig's films... I've been arguing. I I argued it in Skyfall and Spectre that he has his arc was going from kind of like the Dalton in a lot of ways to become much more Roger Moore. I think the closest – Brosnan gets compared to this in Die Another Day. I think Brosnan's just Brosnan in all of them. I think Daniel Craig is very much exhibiting Roger Moore, especially in that Cuba scene. Like I was watching, I was like – there's only two mm-hmm. Bond actors that I could see in the scene. It's Roger Moore and Daniel Craig. And and that's not a put down. Like, I love Roger Moore. And I think that the kind of like pouring the drink and be like, okay, let's go. I was like, this is yes. amazing. And this is yes. where Craig to me, it finalized that like he is, I think, the best of all of the Bonds is that he can bring in the Connery like hard edge, like grab someone by the arm and, you know, tell me where he is. But he can also play that humor and get the wide-eyed, you know, like, Mm -hmm. wink at the camera kind of joke. And, like, the one-liners were effortless. Like, that's where it, to me, was, like, this is Connery and more. And just like Madeline Swan is all the different Bond girls, he is just Bond. Like, he represents, when I think of Bond, you you mentioned Pierce Brosnan. When I think of Bond, it's Craig. Like, Daniel Craig just pops right into the forefront. Um, uh, That said... I just want to end on this because I want to get your thoughts. Because
1: okay,
0: um, this was my my biggest issue with Spectre and with this movie
1: mm-hmm. and
0: with the Bond franchise in general okay. is Blofeld.
1: Oh, I hate him in this movie.
0: <laughs> I have to I have to ask because <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> Blofeld is in the books a very menacing figure mm-hmm. looming over so much that's happening and. Uh, really could be the architect of Bond's pain. You know, like you could say that in in a lot of the Bond books. I have yet, so he is the Joker to Bond's Batman. You know, like Mm -hmm. he is this, it's Bond, Blofeld. I have yet to see a movie handle Blofeld in a way that's interesting. With the exception Mm -hmm. of Honor, Magic, Secret Service.
1: Okay, I was just going to say, I'm like, but even but (laughs) even Honor, Magic,
0: Secret Service, like that doesn't get a real wrap up for mm-hmm, Bond, yeah. like Bond in the next, like in For Your Eyes Only gets the weakest opening sequence of the entire franchise with how he deals with Blofeld. It, it, it retroactively makes me mad when I see the neck break. Like, it's just, it's bad. What
1: is it yeah.
0: You have this amazing actor playing Blofeld, and he sits down for two movies yeah. and talks. Yep. What, why can't we do a good Blofeld, compelling Blofeld story?
1: You know, Look, Christoph Waltz is a great actor. And I know Quentin Tarantino is hit or miss with people, but Quentin Tarantino is a scriptwriter for actors. And he will give you the meat and the potatoes and the side salad and the dessert <laughs> right. and the wine. And he gives enough material and direction to allow actors to step in, fill out, and up their games when they act. And Christoph Waltz is somebody who has played that type of a role, and we've seen him, in a sense, being brought to his best
0: recently. Just like <laughs>
1: Madeline Swan, he was not given anything. Mm. Simply expecting, and and I mean, we might want to say this with Rami Malik a Safin. I know I'm 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 a little bit out on whether or not I like him. I don't even think he was given material. Like well, I was just like, Mwah.
0: I That's think. I agree with you. I I, I think Saffin, when I watched the movie, I was like, the end of that movie would have been more meaningful if Blofeld would have somehow gotten out. Blofeld was doing this plot. You know, Mm -hmm. Saffin's kind of an introductory character, which we needed for Lisa Doe's. But I was like, you have this opportunity in this circle of water. They're both poisoned. To have the yin and yang of Bond and Blofeld dying together. That that would have made it such an amazing culmination of all of the Blofeld Bond thing. It would have made up, I think, for the week. but instead you get him just <laughs> slumped over at Blofeld. It's like That was it. it? And then Safin is like, there's no emotional weight to that. We don't we don't care. He's it's very much like when we meet Dr. No. It's like, oh he's kinda creepy, but it's just Dr. No. You know, like there's no you just meet him and now we don't like him and we're on an island. It's like there is no build between those two characters to where it's like, you know, he has to resort to threatening his child and his wife to become an emotional threat.
1: And they also use a lot of stereotyping. So Safin, um, he has an, an accent. Mm-hmm. I don't know where he's from. So that yeah. that's quite arbitrary. I know that there was trying to do connections with Japan and stuff like that. It never fully like articulated trying to be
0: very Doctor No. I felt
1: yeah, and especially I mean, some of the suits that the um, scientists were wearing are Doctor No suits. The hazmat, never and all f- that. yeah, but never fully explained. And then you have facial disfiguration, which let me <laughs> look. Facial disfiguration, utilizing it as a trope for villainy is problematic. It always has been problematic. We have the British Film Institute trying to call it out and say, stop doing this for villains. And yet, when we talk about all the progress of the Daniel Craig era, with the exception of Quantum of Solace, all of the villains in the Daniel Craig era have some form of facial uh, disfiguration or deformity. And it happens not only with Blofeld in No Time to Die, the lingering elements. It happens with Saffin, And it also happens with, oh, what is his name? One of the hench people with the removable eye.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, uh, well, they call him Cyclops. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's ha- it's frequently happening. And I think it's one of those things where if, if, if James Bond's going to die in a film, give me a villain- worthy of bringing him close to that. And I thought your idea, look, I'm I'm not a fan of the whole Blofeld, Brofeld thing. I would have rather it be Monica Bellucci, somebody with no connection, somebody I didn't expect coming in and just being like, I'm gonna take you down because you messed up all my plans. I don't need to be your brother or your cousin or anything else. I love the idea of having somebody just randomly hate you (laughs) because I think that's more reflective of our society at large and even like our social media culture, right? But I love your idea of having them yin and yang, just dying. Like if, if you're going to do this whole brotherly thing, might as well have it put in that way have and have Bond die for something. <laughs> they have right? the circular
0: yeah. a circular pool.
1: And the thing is, I didn't even under, look, I've watched it twice. I'm trying to understand like, what was the pool about? H- why did the pool go down? What do those rods mean? It's, it, there's visual stuff that's cool, but like, I don't actually understand the form, the function the science. And if it's a garden, it is the most poorly attended garden I've ever seen. Like, where's the green? (laughs) Where are all the plants? Like, it just didn't feel like this might be an unpopular opinion, but like the set design of the Island, let me down. I've already seen you only live twice. And I've seen a volcano and I've seen what Ken Adam can do with, with the set. I expect if you're going to like be, be, be heralding back to the 1960s, I want a fantastic villains lair. If he's leading this, cult-like group of scientists, soup it up. Give me mm-hmm. as much as you can give me. And I felt like the film fell short. So I was like, the set was bad. The, the final part, I was like, ah. and I like your idea about her. So I think that Barbara Broccoli should call us the yes. next time she puts a script together. Right? It's just like yeah, there, these would was, have been cool
0: things. Yeah, I relate to that. Um, you know, because there were things in the set design, like in the opening shots. It was like when you see um, Saffin like walk in front of like the rectangular. I was like, that's cool. Like, or the staircase. But then the rest of it's like, oh, it's a rusty warehouse, and it's like, why didn't we keep this sleek? Because it was the 60s style design, and like some right. of like the cool trap doors, and all. I was like, super cool. But then it was like, now he's in a rusty, looks like the inside of a ship and he's running through and shooting people, which was awesome. And the music was crazy in that scene and all that stuff. But it was like, I want this to either go full bond or not go full bond, you know? Um, But yeah, I I was curious about Blofeld because that was something where I was just like, man, what a disappointing, like, I don't, he could have not been in the movie. It would have played really no, aside from setting up Cuba, um, there's really no purpose for him to be there. Um, Nope. Well, I'll, I know we've talked for 44 minutes now past what we were planning on, uh, which is bound to happen. I could talk for 44 more, um, but I am curious to know your perspective as someone who's looking at this, both from the lens of, you know, obviously advancing how gender roles are, are presented in film, and also as a Bond fan, where do we go from Daniel Craig? Um, because I, I'm part of me wants to see us, you know, take a step back toward the more fun You know, set it in the, you know, in a different time period, set it in the time period of Fleming's books. We've never done that before. The other part of me says part of Bond is that it is relevant to the exact time we're in. So I wanna see it continue to go forward. What do you hope to see happen in the next iteration of Bond?
1: What I wanna see is what I wanted to happen after Skyfall, after Mm -hmm. Bond did his origin story and every, and this goes back to a comment you made. Give me a standalone narrative with a spy doing his job, which is saving Queen and Country and safeguarding the UK, which is why I come to watch a James Bond film. And maybe there's some personal connections, but that can't be the only thing that goes on. And I really thought that after Skyfall, everything had been, you know, we had the old office. Everything was great. Mm -hmm. We're going to pivot to a forward-looking Bond film and adventure And instead, they went way back and they kept looking back. And so for me, this idea of a period piece, I feel like I've already looked back enough in the Mm. Bond franchise. I I don't want to see them remake another Bond film and reintroduce stuff. Look, we all know the elements. We all know the formula. I want a light, bright, exciting narrative where the world is at stake and we need Agent 007 to step in and save us all. That's really what I want. And I think for me, one of the hardest things during the Daniel Craig era is watching other films that feel more more fresh to me um, and that feel more Bond-esque to me than the actual James Bond films. And I want to see great action choreography and I want to see him interacting with different spies like post-Brexit, or are we still in Brexit? With Brexit. I don't know where we are with that. Like, what is it going to be like for James Bond to work with European allies when, you know, Britain is no longer part of the European Union. How hard is it going to be for him to like move through airports and train stations and stuff? He doesn't have the same ease. Will he be able to have partnerships with the US um, and Europe in, in different ways? What will that look like? Like, I'm interested in again, going back to the basics of what makes an episodic Bond film so that you can pick up any Bond film from here on end and watch it as a standalone narrative, because it is a lot to sustain. Like it's not just five Daniel Craig films. It's five films that are way spread out over many, many years with nothing in between. And this expectation that people have A, seen them all, and B, will remember what happened in a previous film, it's probably not going to happen. And you notice that in the US trailers, it was reminding you of all the Bond films, recognizing like people might not know this. So that's what I would like to see moving forward is just like a forward-looking film about something going on in the world and bond needing to step up because that's the type of hero that I've always assumed and wanted him to be. And in addition to that, I know it's never going to happen. Give me my Paloma, Paloma spinoff film because, (sighs) and and style it in the style of atomic blonde. Oh my gosh. Give me like, I love atomic blonde, the action in atomic blonde. I thought that was better than what Daniel Craig did in uh, no Time to Die. And just give me that type of storyline because I think Anna de Armas can, 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 I didn't think she could, can actually do action choreography and carry it off incredibly well. I mean, I'm just telling you like, that's what I want. And I keep saying yeah. people want it, but it's really just me and people. I'm, I'm just taking if people like my tweet <laughs> that people want it, but that's, I mean, those are the directions that I want to go. I've been asked, you know, do you want a woman to play James Bond? That's always the typical question I get asked. But James Bond brings a lot of baggage with him. This is a a film that that has a history, right? Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile misogyny? How do you reconcile sexual violence? How do you reconcile sexism? And the question is, should we? And so that's why thinking of a character like Paloma, it's a way to really emphasize women in the world of Bond without having to really deal with all of that baggage. Because the film will be all about, if it is a woman as Bond, the fact that it's a woman as Bond. And all the media, that's all we will talk about rather than what she's doing in the film. And I think that would take away from whatever she's doing on screen.
0: Yeah, I love I love G- uh James Bond. I love Daniel Craig's answer um to that yeah. question. He said don't just give them a female James Bond, make another character that is on the level of Bond, you know, for a female right. audience. And I think that's that's really a really powerful way to look at it. And I agree. Like I would love to see that series. I think Atomic Blonde is an ex- perfect example. Like Atomic Blonde is one of the best James Bond movies to come out in a long time, but mm-hmm. it's not James Bond. It's just Charlize right. Theron just kicking ass um but yeah I, i'm i'm really interested to see where they go like like you i don't i don't really get excited going like here's who i would cast because i think you know, just right. like daniel craig or just like pierce brosnan or just like roger moore you know i i think that there is this level of you know it's probably somebody we've never seen before or we've seen them in a totally different context and right. you know i'm you know i i I get it. I get Idris Elba. I get why people want that. But again, you could do how many movies, not that many, you know, like Mm -hmm. for that character to stay interesting. People are saying Henry Cavill, but I'm like, it would be a Mm -hmm. throwback just to, I I don't see that.
1: He's Superman.
0: Yeah. He's already, he's
1: already been identified with major figures. I I think Bond would just be too much.
0: Yeah. I, I just, I want to be a cool unknown interesting sure. surprise like Daniel Craig and I do I'm hoping that the next iteration you know I really enjoyed Craig's run the seriousness and the but I really am looking forward to a Roger Moore-esque next yeah. step kind of like you know I'm not a huge fan of the Marvel movies but I would say something near that tone I think with better writing um, to do that kind of more light humorous franchise big franchise kind of stuff yeah. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting, but whatever it is, I'll be there for it. And Barbara Broccoli, give us a call if you need any ideas, we'll brainstorm it. (laughs) But uh, thank you. Thank you so much for for joining me. I know we could talk forever. Um, (laughs) For people that want to connect with you, obviously, they should pick up a copy of one of your books, like For His Eyes Only, which I'm very excited uh, to work through. Um, And um, you've got your website. What are some places for people to find you and keep up with your thoughts on this series?
1: So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, Dr. Lisa Funnel. That's my handle, two N's, two L's, and Funnel. I'm a regular contributor on the James Bond and Friends podcast. I've reposted my podcast, License to Critique. It'll be up on Apple at some point when they approve it. I have not put on new episodes. I'm very busy these days. But if you really want to learn more about aspects of of gender, geopolitics, representation, um, and I have some really interesting interviews on there with other James Bond scholars. It's not just me doing this stuff. Um, It really gives you a glimpse into more of, say, the critical and scholarly world. But I promise you, it's all accessible. So that's me.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, perfect. Definitely guys check that out, head to the link in the show notes and pick up a copy of one of these books or head over to the website. And I definitely think we should talk again once your book drops in March. Um, but thank you so much for joining me on today's show.
1: Yay. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the film school podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe. So you won't miss a single episode.